Well, hello. I'm Neil Taylor, this time in Edinburgh, and this is The Writer's Podcast. A couple of months ago, I interviewed Robert Lane Green of The Economist, and we were both singing the praises of one man, so we thought rather than admire him from afar, we'd put him on the air. So today I'm with Jeff Pullum of the University of Edinburgh, Professor of General Linguistics, co-author of the Cambridge Grammar of the English Language, and something of a grumpy liberal linguist, to talk about how English really works. And we'll be doing some speed debunking of a few long-standing linguistic myths. So, Jeff, welcome. Nice to be with you. Uh, one of your linguistic myths, by the way, is that I'm grumpy. I'm a happy guy. There's no grumpiness here. Good. And by the way, I didn't know you get together with Lane to sing my praises. That really <laughs> hasn't happened to me before. That's the kind of thing that's normally reserved for God, I thought. It's a little musical evening we have every now and again. So, um, <laughs> so you, Jeff, are an academic linguist, which I'm guessing not everyone listening to the podcast actually knows what an academic linguist does. That's right. I'm in a program that's devoted to linguistics, not the study of any particular language, but the study of language as a general phenomenon. The way psychology studies human behavior, linguistics studies human linguistic behavior, and deeper than that, the structure that languages seem to have and the structure that they seem to share. And so what do you actually spend your time doing? All kinds of things, including working out how to frame grammatical descriptions precisely enough that one day they'll be able to use grammars that linguists have worked out to make computers understand human language input, which at the moment they can't do. Don't be misled by the things that are faking it, like voice-driven phone answering systems and Google Translate, which does a kind of gambling on correspondences of word sequences. None of this involves actually understanding what any of the stuff meant. Um, one day we should be able to get computers to understand at least simple linguistic input. But another thing that I do quite a bit now is sort of missionary work going around talking to audiences like copy editors conventions about the myths of English grammar, the things they have been taught that are just not true at all and never were, and so reducing their workload by explaining why it is that they do not have to be so careful about some of the things they thought they had to be careful of. So copy editors are notorious sticklers. We probably have some listening, but they'd probably agree. So how do you go down with an audience like that with your dangerous liberal ways? seems to work very well because everybody likes to have their workload decreased without uh, having to lower their standards. And uh, copy editors are often very intelligent, sophisticated people, and they can do enormously helpful stuff. What isn't useful, though, is application of mechanical rules that really aren't rules at all. They're just uh, shibboleths and ancient superstitions Shifting adverbs that follow the infinitival to just because you once heard somewhere that split infinitives are supposed to be bad. This is really dumb. You need to put adverbs where their meaning contribution is in the right place. If you shift an adverb to the left, um, you're likely to get 
an adverb that sounds as if it's modifying the previous word instead of modifying the verb that should have followed it. I've read you have this rant occasionally, particularly about The Economist seems to come in for a hard time from you, Jeff, for that. Well, it's my favourite magazine, so I've just been watching it closely as they um, ruin their beautiful writing by torturing the language, moving adverbs to positions where they really have made things less clear than they would have been just to make sure they don't have anything like to really get to it and so on. Um, they just won't have an adverb after a two. So where does it come from? Then? Where do those shibboleths and that kind of mythology spring from? 19th century purists who thought that they were cleaning up English as if it wasn't a proper language like Latin and it needed to be uh, shaped up a bit. Um, they were, in fact, reformers. It's a very interesting fact that uh, every American copy editor believes you shouldn't use which in restrictive relative clauses. They're the kind that don't need commas, you know, uh, anything which you might find that sort of phrase. They think which should be replaced by that in those cases. Well, that's an idea due to Henry Fowler and his brother back in 1908. Um, and they had noticed that in the kind of relative clauses that do have commas, you know, America, which is far away from here, that kind of relative clause, which is very common and that is virtually unheard of, and in the other kind, you get a mixture of the two. People use either which or that. So they thought, wouldn't it be nice if in the restrictive relative clauses, you never use which, and in the non-restrictive relative clauses, you always use which. That would be neater, wouldn't it? So they embarked on a program to try and neaten things up. They knew perfectly well that you could read literature and it didn't respect this rule at all. But a weird thing happened. Although their reform effort completely failed, which is why, you know, the, the day after the Pearl Harbor attack, President Roosevelt was saying that December 7th was a date which will live in infamy. That's a restrictive relative clause with which. So the reform failed, but every copy editor seems to have gone to a school with a strict English teacher who thought it had succeeded. So they've been told you've got to switch these witches and change them to that's. And they waste time fiddling with authors writing when they didn't need to. It's just a tragedy to think how many millions of hours must have been spent changing manuscripts so as to get rid of these allegedly disallowed witches. If you know the history and you know the literature, you know that this is just nonsense. Sometimes I think that there might be a slight difference that with new stuff, you use which more and with old stuff use that. That is, if you're introducing something new, a, a new idea which has never been considered before, which seems more natural. And the thing that I was saying earlier there, that seems more natural. So it might have to do with what's newly introduced in the discourse and what's already established in the discourse. But if copy editors keep unnaturally tampering with manuscripts and changing it, we'll never even be able to figure out from the evidence what the uh, real 
generalization is. Well, I was going to ask you about the figuring out, because you've said it might be this, and it seems to be that there is this pattern. So how much of what you do is, I've got this hunch about this might be a rule or something is changing in English. How do you then investigate if your hunch is right? Yeah, I'm afraid uh, a lot of grammarians have done so much of their work using what uh, a philosopher collaborator of mine used to call head-tilting linguistics, where you put your head at a slight angle from the vertical and, and narrow your eyes and say, I think I can get that as acceptable, as if your intuitive reactions inside were the only evidence you've got. That might have been true 30 years ago, but today we've got trillions of words on the web that can be searched in a heartbeat and we can check stuff out and people don't realize how easy that is. The other day I was concerned uh, with somewhere, I forget where, that had said, since must not be used to mean because. It's only got a time use, as in since last Tuesday. You mustn't ever say, since this is true, that must be true. And I thought, let's have a look at some evidence. I've got 50 million words of Wall Street Journal prose on my laptop here. Let's have a quick look. In two seconds, nearly all of which was typing because the search took a hundredth of a second, I found that if you go through from the top, the fourth and the fifth cases of since in the Wall Street Journal files that I had were clearly cases of the inferential kind, not the temporal kind. Uh, why would anybody take some off-the-top-of-his-head pontification by some alleged writing expert when they could check to see what experienced professional writers actually do. Now, uh, there is a contradiction in what I just said. When I check what experienced writers at The Economist do, I find beautiful use of the language until they have to put an adverb modifying a verb in an infinitival complement, and then a copy editor steps in, or the uh, style maven insists, and they shift that adverb to a wrong place, sometimes a place where it really isn't even acceptable. So you get some tampering with the evidence. In the end, the position turns out to be this. Real evidence from what people have written and what they have said is to be trusted whenever you can make sure it's probably trustworthy, but it could contain errors. And your intuitions should in general be trusted, but of course you could always be wrong. So you go back and forth between the two. Like any scientist, always assume that you just might be wrong in your current conjecture. So I'm interested that you said, like any scientist, um, because clearly you're talking about the scientific method here. So how come, given that there is this academic discipline of linguistics, that the general debate about language is dominated by, I would say, amateurs with opinions in a way in which, you know, if we were talking about medicine, we wouldn't be listening to people who just had hunches about it. We'd be listening to people who studied it. Yes. In medicine, you assume that your treatment is going to be evidence-based. 
if there was masses of evidence in the medical journals that this treatment with uh, leeches or whatever simply doesn't work at all, you'd expect not to be treated with leeches when you tend the uh, emergency room. But uh, I've often wondered why it is so different with language, where everyone thinks they are an expert just because they can talk and read and write. It's as if people imagined that they were highly qualified in aeronautical engineering because they know how to get on a plane and fly to Barcelona. Um, I suppose language is so natural for us. We talk and listen and understand all day, all the time. And it's so much a part of our picture of ourselves. The way we talk is the way we present ourselves. But of course, that doesn't really mean you have a technical understanding of how sentence structure works. And it certainly doesn't imply that if you make some conjecture about what is more frequent than such and such, or what is older and more established than such and such, that you'll always be right. Uh, again and again, people find that their intuitions about frequency and what really occurs in language is just completely wrong, or their idea that something is an innovation is a total mistake, and it's been in the language since the 19th century. Give us an example. Well, I was just thinking of an anecdote that uh, the linguist David Crystal tells about um, a woman he was talking to in a group of uh, teachers, I think, who imagined that her speech did not have some particular feature. And he listened to her carefully and could tell it was there. And he was tape recording all this. It was in the days of tape recorders. And he stopped the machine, wound back the tape, and played her her own voice with this particular thing she said she would never, ever do. And there it was. And she did it just like everybody else. And there's nothing wrong with that. And the woman burst into tears. Wow. So it really is a bit <laughs> scary that you could be challenging people's image of themselves and their whole sense of self-worth. If you were to point out to a, a scientist talking on Radio 4 that they have a terrible, annoying habit of beginning every sentence with so, even when that makes no sense, you know, um, Dr. So-and-so, in your opinion... Were the dinosaurs really killed by an asteroid strike? And the doctor so-and-so says, so, and begins an answer to the question with a so that doesn't make any sense at all. They're all doing that. It's enormously common now. And if you pointed it out to them, I suppose they would be embarrassed and upset and, and get all hot and bothered and wonder what to do about it, or maybe burst into tears. But uh, one doesn't want to hurt people's feelings. But the truth is, some features of use of English are just completely normal, nothing wrong with them. Everybody uses the language that way, and we might as well face those facts. When you say that sort of thing, the trouble is that there's an automatic reaction people tend to have saying, oh, you're just saying there's no rules at all. Well, of course, I'm not saying anything of the sort. Heavens, Rodney Hulston and I worked for years and years and years to produce the Cambridge grammar of the English language. 
which is, has more than 1,800 pages carefully laying out in an informal way most of what the rules of English are. We were very careful to make sure that we kept in touch with exactly how it works and how it doesn't work, what you do get and what you don't get, and what the generalizations are that define English the way it actually is used today by its expert speakers. And I guess that's the difference, isn't it? That you're saying this is how it's used rather than how I think it should be used, which is what most people think those books are about. Yes, but that doesn't mean that if somebody says something, it's automatically correct. You get people saying it's on the, 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 the sideboard. And it is not true that the, 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 the sideboard is an properly formed noun phrase in English. What's true, as we can see from the sporadic nature of that sort of phenomenon, is that sometimes people stutter over a small, relatively unimportant, unstressed word while they're choosing a noun. And in fact, you get that massively. If you, if you saw a transcript of even yourself talking about something in, in an unprepared way when you're reading from a script, you'd be horrified at the number of times you repeat a word and stumble on a word and so on. We seem to be brilliant at screening most of that out. But linguists are not going to tell you when that happens, it's because it's correct. They might tell you that's a normal feature of linguistic behavior, but it's not a feature of the grammar. The grammar requires there's only one the at the beginning of a given noun phrase. You can't have more than one. That would be ungrammatical. That's why when you type the, the, as you do sometimes, that really is a mistake. Now, there's a thousand things like that that occur, but are definitely grammatical mistakes. But I guess things that start off as mistakes potentially become the norm, right? I mean, I was interested that when you were talking about the scientists starting their sentences with so, you said uh, in a way that seems to make no sense. But if we accept that that is something that is happening more and more, presumably speakers are deciding, well, that does make some kind of sense. Well, what was in my mind was that so is a connective adjunct that suggests the sentence that's just beginning is connected to the previous one by some chain of logic. Um, this happened, so to cope with that, what we did was this. When you use it as the very first word that you say on Radio 4, having been asked a question about how the dinosaurs died, it hasn't got that function, so what function does it have? You're suggesting that perhaps English will evolve over the next 50 years, to the point where every sentence begins with so, even though it has no meaning at all. It is possible. Strange things happen. And yes, certainly, linguistic change proceeds through the gradual institutionalization of practices that at first were idiosyncratic and possibly even accidental mistakes and then slowly became accepted because people liked the idea of talking that way and soon nearly everybody was doing it. It's not exactly that if a mistake happens too much, it will settle in and become a part of the language. The, 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 the sideboard is never going to be a well-formed noun phrase. But it is true that linguistic change operates by 
very gradually folding into the language something that initially was a little bit outside it, a little bit uh, unusual or idiosyncratic. By the way, it proceeds very, very slowly. The people who think because they've just noticed some usage that they hadn't heard before, that this means change is happening and soon nobody will be able to understand anybody, that's crazy. Even over a hundred years, there's almost no change at all in what the grammar dictates. Notice that little children of five can understand their great-grandmother, who was born maybe nearly a hundred years ago. Yes, great-grandmother will sound a little bit more old-fashioned in some ways, but basically trivial ways. So let's talk about the language of business, which probably most people listening to this podcast are concerned about. So I guess you're not in the world of business, except you'll be a customer of lots of them, like most of us are. So from the outside, do you have any thoughts about the language of business? Well, I definitely uh, had a thought, and it wasn't that complimentary, when my bank wrote to me and said that I had a new relationship number. I thought, relationship? I, if this is a relationship, it's a very unsatisfactory one. We never have sex, and the bank is closed on Saturday nights. We never go out to a movie. I don't want a relationship number. I want an account number, and uh, what on earth is the point of this innovation? but they uh, seemed to have decided that this was an important step. Um, and then another time, I must admit this was in California and maybe it just couldn't happen here in sober-sided British business. In California, where I lived for so long, my mortgage company sent me a poem, a poem about their services, and it was absolutely dreadful doggerel. Um, I could not believe it. I thought, what kind of pork-for-brains advertising consultant have they hired that told them they should send their customers a, a cheery little poem, bad verse? They're a mortgage company, for heaven's sake. Just talk straight and tell the truth about what the interest rate is going to be. That's all I'm really going to need from you. So I'm worried that I'm... I just did a so at the beginning of a sentence there. Yeah, well, no. don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to ask you about this prescriptivist descriptivism in a minute. Um, I worry that I might be one of those pork for brains consultants. I can see the argument that says every time we write to our mortgage customers, we send them the same old deathly dull stuff. Maybe just this time we'll take some writing from a different genre. It will surprise them. It might make their hearts sing over breakfast. Is there anything to be said for that kind of surprise? Well, I suppose so, but um, the most sensible course of all would be to think, what are you trying to get these people to understand and how would you put it if they were a close friend and you were telling them this over a kitchen table? How would you put it if you weren't trying to bamboozle them in any way or impress them, you were just trying to explain the situation? Use language like that and don't use weird substitutes for normal phrases 
on the grounds that you think your official position requires it. I guess that's the very superficial end of something, though. Uh, I guess you you would probably argue that language has the ability to shape cultures and shape relationships. And therefore, if you decided to think about that in a more considered way, you might that might have some kind of positive effect or no? No, I think I would be uh, very cautious about saying that language shapes culture in any way. Um, Behaviour is what shapes culture. And the most important thing a company can do uh, to its public, its customers, is to behave with integrity um, and use language in a normal way. People just don't seem to be able to get the hang of being normal when you put them in contexts where they're uh, facing an abstract customer. I mean, I'm thinking of things like supermarket checkout automatic checkout machines um, that say things like unexpected item in bagging area. Where on earth did the determiners in those noun phrases go? Now, what do normal people call determiners, Jeff? Words like the and uh. <laughs> uh, Why didn't it say there's something in the bagging area I didn't expect? It's a Slavic checkout it sounds it, yes. What you're referring to is that Slavic languages don't have words like uh and the in every singular noun phrase. English does. It's required by the grammar that with a count noun, it must have an uh or a the or something like that. And instead, they leave both of them out as if the, either the script writer was a Russian speaker <laughs> whose English was extremely bad or, and this must surely be closer to the truth, they felt that they couldn't use ordinary language. The script had to look sort of, what, like a machine? I have no idea what goes through their minds. But it does rather suggest that the script may have been written by um, engineers rather than by people who were human interface psychologists and so on, uh, sort of experts in how to get a machine to seem friendly. Well, you've talked about the idea of nerd view, haven't you? Mm. Yes, I've uh, written a few blog posts about the phenomenon of nerd view, where the language is used to say things from the point of an engineer who designed the system, but not from the customer. And even quite subtle mistakes of this sort do constitute nerd view. When you see one of those um, bins outside the back of a factory that says mixed cardboard only, <laughs> the word mixed there is complete nerd view because it's only mixed if you're at the other end at the recycling center where there are different types of cardboard you might have to separate um, and you're allowing this bin to be used for all the different types. But for the person who's got some waste to deposit, all they need to know is that cardboard goes in there. The word mixed is just a subtle sign that the person who devised that sign was thinking 
from the wrong viewpoint, thinking from the recycling centre end instead of the customer end. There's an example that we put in almost every presentation we do at the writer of a sign. If you're driving up to a junction, uh, I saw it at a junction in the middle of London that says pedestrian casualty reduction signal timings experiment. <laughs> yes. What does that mean to me as I drive my car? Driving perhaps toward a sign that says form two lanes. <laughs> I can't do that. <laughs> so again, it's nerd view because the uh, two lanes that you're hoping to get the traffic to form can only be formed <laughs> by coordinated action by all the people in all the different cars. No one of them can possibly form two lanes or even help. Whatever they do, they're going into one of the lanes. It's funny how people don't spend enough time thinking what will the belief state of the customer be at the point where this message is seen? And is it the right message for that belief state? Do linguists ever suffer from nerd view? How would I know? I mean, you're, you're talking to one. Maybe I'm constantly saying things to people and just casually referring to adjuncts and infinitival compliments, assuming you'll understand. Maybe that's uh, my kind of nerd view. Uh, it, you do get kind of locked into a mindset where you imagine that everybody knows what a relative clause is. Because you spend your time thinking about this stuff, do linguists make good writers? Well, I hope so. Um, I guess there's the same range of abilities. Some linguists and philosophers and so on can write beautiful prose that is both exciting and varied and occasionally funny, uh, lovely to read. And that isn't directly correlated with, with the importance of the ideas and whether they're really precise. Others definitely write in a boring and plonking sort of way. It's unpleasant to read, but then they may have some good ideas buried in there. So you get a wide range. It certainly isn't true that all academics are just um, boring old fools who pother on in, in incomprehensible sentences filled with jargon and have no idea how to talk to ordinary people. I'm interested in, well, I'm going to call it attention, and you can tell me whether it's attention or not, between the idea of descriptivism, which is behind most modern linguistics, of the job of the linguist is to describe what's going on in the language, but at the same time, clearly, you are not afraid to express your opinion about bits of language that you think are bad or boring, plonking, uh, whatever it is. So how do you reconcile those two things? I mean, you're not a fan of Dan Brown's writing, for instance. I don't want to talk about his writing without pointing out that uh, he's achieved more in his life than I'll ever achieve in mine. He's had such spectacular success with those novels. I do happen to think that they are almost hilariously bad at points in their style. And I've criticised it. Yes, you don't cease to have personal opinions when you become a linguist. You can still have personal opinions about what you like to use and so on. But I think it is quite important that, for the most part, if you have peeves and hates and things that really uh, seem awful ways to use the language to you, you should 
focus attention on making sure you don't talk in these ways you disapprove of. But it's when people boss other people around that it gets a little less uh, savory. Take the phrase people of color, which became fashionable in the 1980s in California. I just sort of thought it was a very strange way to talk. My black friends weren't persons of color as far as I was concerned. Um, and I just wouldn't use that phrase, never did, never have used it. Um, but I'm not telling you whether or not you should use it. But the worst of all is when you get people who are really judgmental about other people's writing, pontificate about how bad and stupid and ugly their writing is and how ignorant they are, and they themselves don't know anything about what they're talking about. People who say, oh, look at this awful writing here, all these passives, and you carefully go over the prose that they give as their example, and there isn't a single passive clause in there. I'm not telling you how many passives you should use. You'll probably, if you write like a normal person, use about um, about 12% of your transitive verbs will be in passive clauses, and that's just fine. There's nothing evil about passives or incompetent. But the incompetent people are the ones who say, oh, he used lots of passives. He said uh, a, some problems occurred. The thing is, that isn't a passive. Uh, and I do think you should know what you're talking about if you're going to boss other people around and put them down for their use of language. So I'm worried what happens if some poor, unsuspecting copy editor gets hold of your prose and rewrites some of these sentences to fit the rules in their head. What do you say? Well, of course, your immediate feeling is you want to say, do you realise who I am? <laughs> I'm a co-author of the Cambridge Grammar of the English Language and you've moved my adverb. Um, I do get annoyed, but... I also get sort of interested in why on earth did they do this? I had a paper in which every occurrence of though was changed by the copy editor to although. And I wondered why, and I tried to find out. And back came this message saying, you can change them back if you want by writing stet in the margin. I said, no, I, you don't understand. I'd like to know what guide principle you're using that makes it, it seems like you think though is a bad word and although is a good word, as if though is a, uh, an unacceptable colloquial shortening of although, whereas in fact it's uh, the other way around. Although is a 14th century elaboration of though. Uh, though is older and more basic. Um, so I just want to know why you were changing them all but the copy editor wouldn't tell me that just you can change them back if you wish. Just That's ran I scared. I want to understand where these silly changes are coming from. They do seem to take on a moral dimension, these judgments, don't they? Yes. People talk about grammar as if it was morality, which is completely impossible when you think about it. Morality does have a certain universality. If it's wrong to torture a baby, it's wrong everywhere. 
But we know that there are about 7,000 languages on Earth, and they have wildly differing grammar. So grammar cannot possibly be a matter of universal principles that must be the same across all cultures, and if you do it otherwise, you're just wrong. We know that French is different from English, and English is different from Chinese. So it couldn't possibly be the case that grammar is really like morality, not in that respect. Does language still surprise you, Jeff? Every single day, every single hour, it's a constant delight to be a scientist surrounded by the material that needs to be investigated all the time, wherever I go, whoever is talking, someone behind me on the bus or someone on a film that I'm seeing at the cinema. The data is everywhere, and I'm constantly being astonished, including uh, astonished at how wrong I was to think one thing when I've now discovered it's quite different. So, Jeff, now it's time for you to be our listed languager. You get the famous five questions to find out a little bit more about your inner linguistic life. So the first question, what's your favourite word? Well, you didn't rule out proper nouns, so I think my favourite word would be California. <laughs> it's a beautiful name for a beautiful place where I spent 25 years, and uh, I love it. I... Uh, thought I would return there and retire there and live there till I died. Um, but I just didn't expect Edinburgh to be so wonderful. So <laughs> California, just a word that sounds nice. If you insisted I wasn't allowed to pick place names, then I'd go for something else. Like I would probably say, I like somnolent. Because although it means sleepy, sleepy doesn't sound very sleepy, but somnolent really does. I like the way it, it feels sleepy. Although when I emailed you this question, it seems like initially you resisted. Yeah, I said I really don't spend a lot of time thinking about what my favourites are any more than a doctor thinks about what's his favourite disease or something. <laughs> it's what I study and uh, all words are alike to me. But then I decided, no, there are some that I just like the feel of in my mouth. Good. What's your least favourite bit of jargon? I'm a afraid I'd have to go back to something like um, relationship number. But also I have been uh, quite disturbed at the intrusion of business talk like business plan and customer into universities. I don't want my students to be referred to as my customers. I'm not serving them in a store. The student instructor relationship is quite different from the company-customer relationship. So just to go back to our earlier conversation then, isn't that an example where the choice of word might have some influence on what actually happens in real life? You're resisting that word because it comes with an expectation that you're going to behave in a certain way. Yes, that's right. It's what I'm really resisting is not the language changing because it isn't really a change in language it's an attempt 
to push into the university world the concepts of a business relationship and the idea that students are customers who want a product and so on. By the way, I don't really care for this uh, generalization of the term product so that it covers things like uh, types of bank account. That feels odd jargon to me. Who would you like to write like? That's something on which I'm very much split because I write um, popular blog posts for the Chronicle of Higher Education every week and I really like trying to write humorously. It just gives me great pleasure. So I'm thinking of the greatest humorous writers, not David Sedaris, he's too much of a unique genius. I couldn't <laughs> possibly be like him. But there are people like Bill Bryson at his best and perhaps best of all, Clive James, who are able to write in a way that gives you an actual laugh-out-loud moment every two pages on average. That's a wonderful skill. If I could write like Clive James, I'd be very pleased indeed, as long as my academic papers could be written with the skill and precision of something like the mathematical logician Emil Post who seems to me to write so beautifully about mathematics and so clearly, uh, it's quite extraordinary. Uh, those are two very strange and apparently incompatible ambitions to be like Clive James and like Emil Post, but those are the two things that come to my mind. You talk about your blog posts. You don't like comments on your blogs, do you, Jeff? I really... Don't. Um, but I'll tell you what really is so upsetting about them. It's not the nastiness. I can take nastiness uh, if we're going to have a knife fight. Um, I'm well equipped with uh, suitable put-down phrases too. Um, though you're not meant to do that to your uh, customers <laughs> on a blog. The Chronicle of Higher Education is making money from these people that are subscribing to the magazine. Now, what upsets me is the idiocy of the people who read the first paragraph of what I wrote, assume they know what I'm going to say then, though, you know, in paragraph five, I say, now the crucial mistake in all of this is the following, and I reveal something, and they just start writing a comment straight away, and it's completely stupid. Um, it's the idiocy, uh, the dumbness. I want a blog to be sitting there so you can read it, be informed, and then not to have dozens and dozens of people below who've un misunderstood what I was saying or asserted the complete opposite because they think it's otherwise as well. This happens nearly every time. I just wrote a piece for the Chronicle of Higher Education on how they takes singular antecedents. It clearly does. It always has. And uh, the first commenter says, I don't think this is right. My teacher taught me that you shouldn't do this and so on. Good heavens, the whole point <laughs> I was making was that teachers like that had been teaching something that wasn't true. And I gave carefully chosen examples. And I just get a reassertion of the thing that I was speaking against. That seems to me so annoying that I can hardly bear it. The Chronicle likes to know who's reading them, so they like to see comments piling up. So my policy there is to try not to look. How often do you get sucked in? 
once or twice every month, I suppose. <laughs> well, I tell you one thing. I wrote a piece that uh, was out about the syntax of the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution, the one about uh, protection of gun ownership rights. And they told me there were 400 comments after it before the end. I've never looked at a single one of those because I just don't want to know how much they hate me in the National Rifle Association. <laughs> um, if you weren't in academia, is there a business that you would like to work on the language for? I think it would have to be the financial industry, uh, banks and investment companies and so on. Um, it's so important and they make so many mistakes in ways in which they address their customers because they're not just like a baker handing over a loaf of bread. They're, the whole purpose uh, of their existence is highly interactive arrangements for managing people's money. It's very subtle and complex and rich and the uh, they interact with all types. I would really like to be involved in doing something for banking industry that wasn't quite as silly as what some of them occasionally done. We can make that happen for you, Jeff, if you really want to be involved. Oh, I didn't think there I Good heavens, to start with the singing my praises and then end with a job offer, this is a very unusual day. <laughs> when or where do you have your best ideas? Well, I always think that I'll be able to get ideas if I go out for a walk, and that never works at all. While I walk along, other things happen to me. Songs come to me like earworms, or I see people that I know, or I start watching things about the traffic. It, it's useless, so it's not out for a walk that works. What really does work, and I think this is true for lots of people who've done difficult technical work, is to focus um, very closely on the details to actually start trying to write something that you've half formed and get involved in it and then new ideas come. Um, the only other time I get actual ideas coming is in bed at night in the dark when I'm half asleep. I actually think things all the way through at four o'clock in the morning and when I get up they're still there. So uh, a combination of being of working very hard and concentrating very intensely and then going to sleep and being very relaxed. Put the two together and the ideas will come. And finally, those of us who spend our lives writing for clients and training other people to write often get forced to defend the supposedly ungrammatical, in inverted commas, choices we often make in our writing. So while we have the master here, we want you, Jeff, to do the fastest possible debunking of some so-called rules so every listener is armed for the rest of their life. I will try. So, you must never split an infinitive. There have been adverbs between the two and the verb in infinitival clause for hundreds and hundreds of years. The best writers use that construction whenever they feel like it. It's nervous Nellies who've been bullied in school who try to avoid it. You cannot start a sentence with and or but. The best way to tackle the question of whether you can begin sentences with and or but is just to search 
prose that you admire on your computer looking for sentences that begin with and you will generally find one on the first page of any great novel that you think is beautifully written uh, likewise with but uh, it's always been the case that you can begin sentences with these coordinator words and the notion that children should be bullied into not doing it is really quite strange. I can only assume that teachers of young children who are just learning how to write found that they were using it way too much. But the answer to something that's being done too much is not to forbid it completely. The kids are using like way too much. Well, there's at least five different words that are spelled and pronounced like and Nobody seems to separate out the different occurrences. We all use the verb, I really like you. We all use the adjective, it's, it's like the other one we had. What people are annoyed at is that like is being used as a hedge to indicate that the following adjective is perhaps not quite the right one, but it's approximately right. So, it so he was like cautious. crazy? Uh, yes, it was like sort of blue. Um, it suggests indecisiveness. And, uh, of course, we're meant to grow up and stop being teenagers and be decisive about everything. And that's why the world is in the dreadful state it's in today. <laughs> Are there any more uses of like? Um, there is the interesting... Uh, genuinely quite recent use of like to introduce quotations. Uh, he was like, whoa, what is this? Uh, it's very colloquial, but uh, I rather, well, I like it. They is never singular. Interestingly, that's actually true. They is a plural pronoun and it takes plural agreement. You say they are and nobody gets that wrong. Nobody says they is. But it can have singular antecedents. You can have things like, no one is going to agree that it should apply to them. That's perfectly natural English. It is false that they can never have a singular antecedent, but it's true that syntactically, grammatically, it's a plural pronoun, so it needs are, not is. So this might be one of these things that feels recent but isn't. Yes, absolutely. Um, the... Uh, practice of using they with antecedents like no one and everybody goes back at least to Chaucer. So it's hundreds and hundreds of years old. Is something happening, though, where they is getting used when you do definitely know the gender of the person that you're talking about? Yes, it is. It's quite surprising. But people are using phrases like, if I thought somebody was pregnant, I would try to be careful about them. Um, the people say things like, um, whoever wrote this, they are pretty clever, even if they're talking about a graffiti in a men's toilet, <laughs> so it had to be a man that wrote it. Um, it's just that the tendency to use they as the pronoun in contexts where the antecedent is no one or anybody or someone is so strong that it will sometimes override the possibility of using a gender-specific pronoun. 
And might it almost be that it's becoming marked, to use a linguistic term, to call out the gender of someone and the default just to be to say they if it's not relevant to the point you're making? Well, in some contexts, yes, but there's some grammar to this that everybody intuitively knows. Um, it's true that people will use the singular antecedent for they to conceal a reference to gender or to avoid a reference to gender. Um, so you might say to somebody, um, and you can, you can bring your partner if they want to come, which doesn't involve assuming that they have a male partner or assuming that they have a female partner. However, they can't have a singular antecedent if it's a name. Suppose, this is a bit subtle, but suppose there is someone called Chris. You know this Chris. I don't, I've never seen this person. It could be a Christopher, it could be a Christine. I know they were here earlier and I see that a coat has been left in the corner. I can't say, hey, Chris has left their coat. At least for me, that doesn't seem like a grammatical possibility. I've just heard that HSBC, where I do have an account, has instituted... Or a relationship. A, a relationship, uh, a set of 10 different titles you're allowed to use. If you don't want to be Mr. and Mrs., they've got a whole series of other possibilities. I might get to three or four. I'd struggle to get to 10. Yeah, I was amazed to hear it, but uh, I will investigate it a bit further. Thank you, Jeff. Unlike Jeff's posts on Language Log, comments are open. So email podcast at thewriter.com if you've got something you want to say. And if you like what you're hearing each month, leave us a nice review on iTunes or wherever you listen to us. If you still don't know the writer, have a look at thewriter.com or our LinkedIn page or on Twitter at the writer. The producers are Martin Ashworth and Theo Broughton. I'm Neil Taylor, and that was the Writer's Podcast from Edinburgh. Talk to you soon. So I'm interested. I did it again with my sew. You've, you've got me super paranoid about it now. Super. That's another one of those things that's increasing, isn't it?